Well, we are uh, finishing up a series today, but if you haven't been here for it, don't worry about it. Uh, I always do my best to catch us up and make sure everybody's on the same page as we move forward. The title of the series has been Embracing Kenosis. It's actually a mini-series within a larger series we've been doing on the book of First Peter. And... Uh, it's entitled, again, Embracing Kenosis. Now, kenosis is a word that may be unfamiliar. I've been defining it each week, so if you've been here, this is review. But if not, then this will be your first time. Kenosis is a Greek word. It has to do with hollowing something out, with emptying something, with pouring something out. And it's a word that theologians often use to describe what God did when He became flesh in the person of Jesus. Embracing kenosis, embracing self-emptying, embracing the pouring out of ourselves. And this whole series has been occupied, this mini-series, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 2, verse 3 is where we've been. And the whole series has been occupied with three mysteries that God revealed to humanity in the person of Jesus. Mysteries that had been hidden from the beginning of the world until the coming of Christ. Last week, we, or two weeks ago, we explored the mystery of God's mission. The mystery of God's mission. And we uncovered, or at least Jesus uncovered for us, a pattern that God has been repeating throughout all of history, beginning with creation in Genesis and all the way through the history of Israel and all the way up, I believe, even until the present time. But it was a pattern that was not exactly clear, that didn't exactly make any sense until Jesus revealed what it was. And it is the pattern of self-sacrifice and life from death. Last week we discussed the mystery of holiness. And I reminded us that the language of holiness, we hear it in the church all the time, many of us use it, many of us have very peculiar definitions of it. But the language of holiness at its core has to do with difference, has to do with uniqueness, has to do with exceptionality, specialness. And what I suggested last week was that Peter... Now, there are many ways that God is holy. Many ways in which He's different than us. Many ways in which God is exceptional. And so there are lots of ways to talk about holiness. But Peter brought one aspect of holiness before us. There's one way for Peter that God is exceptional that becomes the foundation of the way Christians live in the world. God is exceptional in His selflessness in the way He treats His enemies, in the way He responds to those who persecute Him. So the mystery of God's mission was a repeating pattern of self-sacrifice and then life from death, joy from suffering, great good from great evil. The mystery of holiness was that holiness begins not with obedience or with conviction, or with intention, or with sincerity, but a holy life, a life truly patterned after the life of Jesus, begins with love, as it has been embodied and described by Jesus. And as we return to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 3, today for the final sermon in this mini-series, we'll encounter a third mystery revealed in Jesus. And it's this, the mystery of transformation. The mystery of transformation. That's the third point of the sermon I've preached in three weeks. So you're not going to get another point. That's the one. The mystery of transformation. Now, there's a, I haven't mentioned Calvin and Hobbes in a while for those who have been here, and maybe some of you missed it. 
Pastor Brian reminded me of that fact this week, and so I thought, well, maybe it's time for another one. There's a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. If, ne- if none of you have seen it, shame on you if you have never read a Calvin and Hobbes. Um, if, if you haven't, let me bring you up to speed. It's a, it's a little boy with his pet or toy, Tiger, that he pretends is real. And so most of the comic strip they are talking, but it's all Calvin and his imagination, really. And uh, there's this wonderful little comic strip where they're dressed up, ready for war. Calvin's wearing a little green hat, like you see in World War I. And... Uh, Hobbes, the tiger, says, how come we play war and not peace? And Calvin responds, too few role models. That's just the first two. They they go on, but that's where I'll stop. Maybe some of you can imagine how I'm going to tie that in later. We'll see if you've got me pegged yet. I'm not going to tell you what it means to me yet. If you have access to a Bible this morning, you're not already there, I'll invite you to turn with me to the New Testament epistle of 1 Peter, chapter 1. And as been my custom throughout this mini-series, I'm going to read the entirety of the passage we've been dealing with so that we're all in context. It always feels weird to me to say, turn with me. And I've, you know, I did turn. Believe me, I turned to Peter. I did it like before we were together here when I put it on my computer. But I probably should have a Bible so that I can uh, look like I'm not lying to you. But I am inviting you to turn with me after the fact. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. And I'm reading from the New International Version translation of the Bible. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him, and so your faith and your hope are in God. Now, you have pur- now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The, gl- the grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's the word of God. Now, if the mystery of God's mission is that God over and over again, 
sacrifices himself for the sake of his enemies, brings light from darkness, brings order from chaos, brings life from death. If that's the mystery of God's mission, and if the mystery of holiness is that a life of godliness, a truly ethical life before God, begins by following this same pattern in our everyday lives through forgiveness, prayer for our persecutors, and love of our enemies, then how is that transformation to be achieved? How is this new birth to be achieved? I mean, how are creatures who have been born, raised, and culturated, and practiced very hard to be largely self-reliant, self-centered, friend and family focused creatures? How can we be transformed into creatures who lay down our lives, not for our friends, who lay down our lives not for our families, not for our children, not for our parents, but for our enemies? How are we to embody holiness as God is holy? How are we to love in that way? Really, is it even possible? I mean, we can't, right? I mean, no way. We're just supposed to try, right? We're supposed to try. I mean, that's all God wants. Or maybe the point is just to constantly admit that we're incapable of doing it, right? That's what God wants. He just wants me to tell Him that I can't do it. That's the point. I mean, Jesus showed us what it looks like to be made in God's image so that we would realize that it was impossible for us to be holy, right? And wasn't He showing us what we couldn't do? Jesus shows us that we need God to do it for us so we don't have to do it ourselves. I mean, that's the gospel, right? God doesn't actually expect us to live like Jesus now. I mean, maybe one day in heaven. Sure. But now? I mean, right now, God wants us to look like we've always looked and live like we've always lived. The difference is He just wants us to repent and to tell Jesus we need Him and on and on, right? I mean, that's what it is to be a Christian, isn't it? Is that what Peter has taught us, really? Is that what he said? Look again at his exhortation in chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, Be holy, because I am holy. Now, it's possible that Peter is being sort of facetious here. I, mean, I, I can't read his mind. I suppose he could have known that the Christians in Asia Minor would never live up to what he just said. Maybe he just wanted them to aim at the right target, irrespective of how poor a shot they turned out to be. To borrow language from John Maxwell, some of you remember this, maybe Peter just wanted them to fail forward. You know, fail in the right direction. I can't enter Peter's mind, so I have to say I can't say for certain what his hidden motives might have been. But I do feel confident saying this. There's nothing in his language that betrays any lack of earnestness in what he's saying. Hear it again. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. To my reading, the only reason to question Peter's genuineness in that command or his real belief that it can be accomplished by the church is experience. 
I mean, there are really so few good examples of this having happened, right? I mean, so few of those who confess to be born again, to have forsaken all to follow Jesus, they so few truly show the kind of grace that Peter's talking about. So it mustn't be possible, right? I mean, if it was possible, there'd be more. Besides, we're all fallen creatures, right? We're all imperfect. Haven't we all fallen short of the glory of God? Doesn't the Bible say somewhere, I think I remember this, that anyone who claims to be without sin is a liar and makes God to be a liar? I remember that someplace. All that is true. We are fallen creatures, corrupted by ungodly ways of thinking and living. We're all imperfect in our knowledge, in our consciences, in our deliberations, and in our performance. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And it is, in fact, 1 John that does tell us that any of us who claim to be without sin are liars. And we make God out to be a liar. Even more, when Jesus taught His disciples to pray, in Matthew chapter 6, He taught them to confess their sins every time they prayed. So we can't really be holy, right? I mean, that's got to be the conclusion. We can't really do it. Well, that all depends on what holiness is. Doesn't it? Perhaps we've seen so few holy people because we've misunderstood what holiness is. For those who were here last week, what I'm about to say will be a review. And for everybody else, this will get us all up to speed. Last week I reminded us that for Peter, holiness doesn't begin with obedience. It doesn't begin with conviction. It doesn't begin with consecration. It doesn't begin with intention. It doesn't begin with sincerity or any of that. Holiness begins with love. With the willingness to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That's the first step of holiness. In fact, Jesus summarized the entirety of God's law with only two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He says this is the law and the prophets. And Peter himself would write in just a few chapters, in chapter 4, verse 8, we're not there yet, but we will be soon, Peter will write, love covers over a multitude of sins. Holiness isn't about consistently following a list of rules and regulations. It's just not what it's about. Holiness isn't about perfectly living up to a set of unattainable standards. It's not what it's about. Holiness is not about never making mistakes. It's not about never making errors in judgment. It's not about never failing to live up to our ideals. That's not what holiness is for Peter, I don't think. Holiness, I know this part is controversial. If the rest wasn't, this one will be. You're ready for this. Holiness isn't even about never deliberately disobeying something that we think God generally wants of us. All due respect to Wesley. I'm agreeing with him in an unconventional way. And you know who Wesley is, it's fine. I'm not going to tell you. Holiness is about love. It's about forgiveness. It's about giving to people what they don't deserve. It's about laying down our lives and lifting up our prayers for our enemies. This is the life of Jesus. And Jesus is the way of holiness. And Jesus is the image of God. Holiness isn't about never failing or falling short of the glory of God. It's not even about not sinning. Holiness is a way of life that when it fails, 
when it makes mistakes, it makes mistakes of grace. It makes failures of love and forgiveness. It no longer makes mistakes of selfishness and self-centeredness and vengeance and wrath. Look back at Peter's teaching, picking up in verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, we already talked two weeks ago that the truth there is the life of Jesus. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, which has resulted in something, so that you have sincere love for each other. That's the product. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Maybe it looks like Peter's taking kind of a right turn when he says that. What's the point of that? Why are we so interested that everybody gets caught doing their bad things? We're so afraid that if we forgive someone, if we love someone, if we make an error of grace, if we're just too gracious, they're going to get away with it. Well, I can't let them get away with it. What if they get away with it? All people are like grass. Their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall. It's the word of the Lord that endures. They're not going to get away with it. This is the word that was preached to you. So look at what he tells them to get rid of. Rid yourselves of malice, hate for other people. Deceit, deceiving of other people. Hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another. Envy, wanting what somebody else has. Slander, talking bad about other people. Get rid of those things. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. What did you taste that was good? He saved you while you were a sinner. He gave you what you did not deserve. He laid down His justice at the cost of His own life for you. You've tasted that. You know it's good. You know that that love of God given to sinners changes the world. How could we not extend the same? This is holiness. What I'm saying is that I believe Peter was encouraging the believers in Asia Minor to recognize that God is working to transform His people on this side of eternity, not into flawless beings who approximate God but into creatures as flawed and finite as we may be who love. Who love so thoroughly and completely that even our sins and our mistakes become sins and mistakes of love, of care and concern for the world. I'm going to give you an example to prove this. You might not think I'm being biblical there, but believe me. The difference between true followers of Jesus and the world is not whether we make mistakes or whether we sin technically. The difference on this side of eternity has more to do with why we fail and why we sin than it does that we fail or that we sin. The failures of the world are out of selfishness, self-promotion, vengeance, competition, power, self-importance, self-righteousness, or selective loyalty to a group or individuals or to a cause. The failures of Jesus' followers are missteps of grace. Failures rooted in our love of others, even of our enemies. 
And it is love that covers over a multitude of sins. Even more, for Peter, we're transformed into these new creatures in Jesus only after we've embraced this vision of holiness. And only after we've agreed with God that these are the creatures we either wish or are willing to become. True transformation is initiated, and and this is the pattern. I mean, it's something Peter's been telling us for three weeks. I hope this week it'll start to make some sense. And if you weren't here for three weeks, I hope you get the whole ball of wax right now. True transformation is initiated when we are encountered by the way of holiness, the way of love as it's been lived out by Jesus. When Jesus entered this world, He lived in a way that prior to Jesus, very few people had ever lived. I would argue, historically, it's hard to evidence that anyone lived the way Jesus did before Him. That's always been the problem for Him with skeptics and why people think people made up the story, because He's almost too good to be true, the way that it's told. But Jesus evidences before us a way of living that is so radically different that when the world sees that the world has changed forever. Empathy. Care for enemies. For those we should have no care for. That's not natural to humans. It's not part of our history. Our history is to be doggedly faithful to those things that are in our best interest. But when the world, when Jesus demonstrated it to the world, the world changed. That's the beginning. Now, it doesn't thoroughly transform us. It certainly doesn't save us, but it begins to change us. Matter of fact, I look into our very society and I watch people who are willing to lay down their lives for their enemies and they're not Christians. And I recognize, do you recognize this? They wouldn't be doing that if Jesus hadn't come. They wouldn't have known how to do it. They wouldn't have had the tools to understand the value of it. They wouldn't be able to taste the power of it had He not come. So they're pagans. They don't even know Jesus, but they've been transformed by Him. Why? Because He lived in this world, and the world saw it, and the world has never been the same. They're selfish people too. But that's how transformation begins. It begins when we're encountered by the way of holiness, the way of love as has been lived out by Jesus. Once we see it, a change starts to happen. Now, it's not a salvific change yet, but it begins... And God proceeds in His work of transformation in us as He burrows that example of Jesus down deep into our hearts. It begins to take over our consciences. People who should be pretty self-centered, all of a sudden they see somebody in need or even an enemy. Goodness sakes, we're thinking about going to some sort of a war, moderated conflict with Syria, and you've got completely non-Christian people in America begging not to hurt the Syrian people. Why should we care? We shouldn't. I know it's tough to prove, but... I think Jesus is the reason they care. They don't know why. But the world has been changed. And God takes that example of Jesus, He burrows it deep into us, and it begins to express itself through expressions of conscience that make no real sense. And then the transformation begins to ignite. And this is what it means really to start following Jesus. It begins to ignite when we begin to hunger for more of that. And we recognize that it's only God and Jesus who can give it to us. And then it really begins to ignite and we follow Jesus. And then it gets expressed through a willingness to go where the Spirit of God is leading us. And when we begin to take those baby steps of offering forgiveness to those who have hurt us, of praying for those who persecute us, of loving and even willing to lay down our lives for people who should be our enemies, holiness begins to take over. God begins to take over. We begin to find what we were created to be. There's probably no story that illustrates this better than the story of King David 
and his son Absalom in the First Testament. Some of you may recall the story. We find it in the First Testament book of Second Samuel. And the tale really begins in chapter 13. So you're welcome to be there. I'm not going to read much of it. I'm going to mostly just summarize it. But if you want to see it, Second Samuel chapter 13 in the First Testament the Old Testament, for those who aren't initiated into my language. It begins quite morbidly, that tale, when David's son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. It's a bad beginning. And David had another son. His name was Absalom. David had lots of kids. But Absalom was a full brother of Tamar. And when he found out what Amnon did, it enraged him. And he began to plot to murder his brother. And Absalom eventually was successful. He killed Amnon. Now, Absalom fled Jerusalem because he wanted to escape any justice from his father. Now, David's probably a bit divided on the whole issue because he does find out that Amnon did something that was worthy of the death penalty. Absalom killed him in a wrong way. But, so David doesn't actually pursue Absalom, and he loves his son. In fact, he loves him so completely that after some time, he longs for him to be back home in Jerusalem. And seeing that, one of David's generals, a man named Joab, quite a piece of work, really. If you ever want to find a mean-spirited guy to track through Scripture, you can track Joab. Um, he, he realizes David wants Absalom back, but he can't allow himself to do it. So, so Joab hires a woman to pretend to be in deep distress. David goes to her and talks to her and she says, King, I'm so distressed because Absalom is gone. How can a son who tried to uphold the righteousness of his father be in exile? And she mourns and weeps. And that's what David needed. He needed somebody to tell him it was okay. And so Joab manipulates David into letting Absalom come back. And Absalom comes back. But Absalom repays David's mercy in quite horrific ways. Absalom begins slowly to curry the favor of the people because you see he sees his father as weak because of all this. And he plans a coup to take over David's leadership of Israel. And he's very successful in it. In fact, David has to flee Jerusalem and run away. And the whole overthrow reaches its pinnacle when Absalom sets up a tent on the roof of the royal residence, he takes his father's concubines, wives for all intents and purposes, and he has sex with them on that roof in front of all of Israel, every one of them. Absalom, David's son. Despicable is a tame way of describing it. Now, Absalom's exploits went on, but that's a long story. Eventually, because God showed a little grace to David by poisoning the advice of one of Absalom's advisors, David's men began to get the upper hand on Absalom. And while fleeing from David's general on a mule, Absalom, who had very long hair, it's a feature of the story, got his hair tangled in a tree. Now, David had ordered his people not to kill Absalom. He wanted him taken alive. He wanted his son back home. But Joab, being Joab, killed him anyway. It's always easier to ask forgiveness than permission. That seems to be the mantra of Joab's whole family. David's response to the news of Absalom's death has been recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33. And I am going to read this, but we should remember in reading it what Absalom had done to David. Taken his throne, had sex with his wives, murdered his son, and this is how David responds to the news. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And he went, as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 
He actually goes on for so long that in chapter 19, Joab, same guy, comes to David and says, you're embarrassing yourself and you're embarrassing Israel. This is inappropriate. This guy tried to take the throne and you're crying for days that he's dead. Clean yourself up. The people want a victory. Celebrate it. I mean, this is the reprimand. Now, David had not been a pristine example of faithfulness to the law of Moses throughout his kingship. He had broken the law on quite a number of occasions. But back when God anointed David king, he did call David a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. Now, it's very hard to tell how that's the truth early on in David's story. It takes quite a long time before that prediction actually bears any fruit. David had lived quite selfishly early in his kingship. He was brave and he fought for God, but always to his own advantage, every time. But after a monumental failure of adultery and conspiracy to commit murder, you remember the story when David did that, some of you? David seems to have taken steps toward becoming the man that God saw him in him in his youth. Now, of course, Absalom was David's son, so there's a tie there that parents who have had difficult children can appreciate. But Absalom had made himself an enemy of David in the most vile and vicious of ways, and when he died, David's response was to wish he could have died for him. David's grief was so profound and so lengthy that his own commander chastised him. Now, David was wrong to allow Absalom to go unpunished. He broke the law in doing that. He should have been punished for the murder of his brother. He should have been, ex- he should have been um, killed for the seizure of the throne. And if not for any of those things, certainly for adultery with David's concubines. The law of Moses was very clear that if a parent had a son who lived in those ways, he was to be brought before the community and stoned to death. That was the law of Moses. So David violated it, and he was wrong to do that. This was a sin to not punish Absalom. But unlike his sin of adultery and murder in the past, which was all about him, David's sin this time was out of love for an enemy. And I think before God, that made all the difference. We have no story of anybody, any prophet being sent to, ju- to criticize David for this behavior, though that did happen with Bathsheba and adultery. David loved his enemy in a way that none of his officers could understand. And perhaps no one would have understood David's heart, really, until we saw the heart of God for the wicked displayed in Jesus. So when Hobbes asked Calvin why they always played war and never peace, and Calvin responded that there were too few role models, that, that, that sits with us, doesn't it? I mean, when some of us read these exhortations in Scripture to be a holy people, to love our enemies, to forgive those who harm us, to turn the other cheek, to be perfect as God is perfect, we dismiss them not because they look like they should be dismissed, but for similar reasons. We have no role models. It just doesn't look practical. But perhaps we've been looking for holiness in the wrong place. Rather than looking at the failures or flaws or mistakes in behavior of our brothers and sisters, let's face it, if holiness, if the criteria of holiness is that somebody else will always do what you would do in a given situation, you're not going to find too many holy people in this world. I mean, if if the definition of holiness is that someone always lives up to your interpretation of the Word of God in every instance, let's face it, you're not going to find very many holy people in this world. But maybe rather than looking at the failures or the flaws or the mistakes in the behavior of our brothers and sisters in Jesus, perhaps we should be looking to the heart to observe holiness and see if this is true. And I don't mean that we should be looking specifically at a person's intentions to obey. Did you intend to do what God said according to my interpretation of it? Then maybe you're holy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm suggesting that we need to look at a person's intentions to love. 
Some may choose never to fight and to oppose all war out of a desire to love all humankind, even enemies, equally. Another may choose to fight to defend strangers or even enemies who are in a position to be unable to defend themselves. I've heard both. I've heard people say, don't go to war in Assyria because, I mean, in Syria, sorry, because war is always wrong. And it doesn't achieve anything. And we should not be killing people for an agenda. I've heard people say that. Christian people. I've heard other Christian people say, the Syrians are more or less enemies. I mean, they've jihad and all the other stuff and the violence that that culture has wanted to do to us. I mean, more or less they're enemies. But I've heard other Christians say, we shouldn't go. I mean, we need to go and defend them and protect them because they can't protect themselves. That's laying down our lives and resources for enemies. And then there are others who believe we should go and be on the borders and take the refugees out and put our lives at stake to save people. And the Church of the Nazarene is doing that. Do you see that these are very different behaviors? One's advocating war, one's advocating pacifism, war, never war, and the other one is saying humanitarian aid should be our response. There are three very different responses, but do you see that if we look deeply in the heart, they could all be motivated by the exact same thing? The desire to love enemies. We're just disagreeing on how it should be done. They all could be rooted in Jesus. The mystery of God's mission is God's repeating pattern of sacrificing Himself to save His enemies. And the mystery of God's holiness is that the holiness God calls His people to embody begins, proceeds, and ends in the love of our neighbors, of our enemies, of persecutors, of strangers, of the disenfranchised, of the hurting. And the mystery of transformation is that holiness begins with the example of Jesus. It proceeds with the willingness to be transformed into a loving creature. And it's fed by the Word and Spirit of God. And it results not in sinless perfection on this side of eternity, but in a life permeated by love for the world. A life that, even when it missteps, even when it fails, even when it sins, it falls in love. A holy people forgives wrongs instead of harboring hate. A holy people pray for persecutors instead of seeking vengeance. A holy people love enemies instead of seeking victory over them. A holy people love God with all they are and they love their neighbors as themselves. A holy people, if necessary, lays down their lives for their enemies and for the world. This is the work God is doing in those who follow Jesus truly. And I believe that if we look closely, we'll see evidence of this transformation in the hearts of people right here at New Beginnings. I've seen it. And in almost any church, true church of God, that we visit. Sometimes it won't look like perfection. And it certainly won't look like your vision of perfection. I'm certain of that or mine. And sometimes it won't feel like love when we experience it. But if we take the time to look to the heart of our brothers and sisters, in many we will see this transformation taking place. We will see a willingness to lay down their lives for their enemies. And as Peter has exhorted us, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I hope forgiveness and grace and mercy have felt so good to you in receiving it that you want more and more and more of it and it begins to pour out into the people around you. 
I do not agree, and we'll get to this three weeks from now in our discussion group, but I don't agree with those who believe that we should call homosexuality okay in the church. It's sin. But I have some friends who are trying to reach out to that community, who are trying to show grace. And I do think that they're reaching out in ways that compromise the scriptures, some of them. And so I think they're wrong. But when I see their hearts and why they want to do it, I don't question whether they are holy. I question whether they are right. And that's why we need the Word of God, because we will make mistakes of love. We will be too gracious. And the Word of God holds us back, and it pulls us back to God's teachings to remind us what it looks like to be holy, as God is holy. But the impulse to love is what drives the church. Matter of fact, the church in Corinth was so driven by it that they had a guy in their church, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, who was sleeping with his stepmother, and they didn't do anything about it. Paul couldn't believe it. What are you doing? And so he said, you have to judge this. This is sin. You can't let this be in your, in your midst. You've got to tell this guy he can't do it. But you know the great thing about Corinth? It was an error of love. They were too gracious. The bad thing? They allowed their love to lead them away from God. And that can happen. But that is a mistake holy people make. When selfishness leads us away from God, that is a mistake the world makes. We must continue to read the Word. We must continue to wrestle with it so that our holiness looks like Jesus' holiness. But the impulse to love is a sign of sanctification. Maybe some of you thought, I'm not holy, I'll never be holy. If you have an impulse to love those that you gain nothing from loving, God is at work in you because that is not natural, the Scriptures tell us. Perhaps we've been taking too much credit for God to see when God is at work. Perhaps we've convinced ourselves we're just good people. And God has gotten none of the glory for what He's doing in us. It's one of the things that called Jennifer and I to this church when we came and we saw your hearts in worship. We knew this is a holy people. Not a perfect people. Goodness sakes, I wouldn't even be in a position to decide that. But a holy people. And with each misstep of love and grace, God will teach us to love better and more obediently. My job is not to convince you to love, it's to make sure that you do it biblically. The impulse to love will drive you if you let God do what He's doing in you. Let's pray.